So Money Episode 235, So Money Millennial, Sophia Vera. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey everyone, welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnish Tarabi. How'd you like the way I said that? So money. It's a so money week and we've got millennials all week capturing all the earning, saving, investing, paying off debt that millennials are doing. Yes, millennials, I dare say it. They're not just a generation that is struggling. In fact, there are many, many enlightening stories and that is what the theme of this week is. And today showcasing our fourth millennial superstar, Sophia Barra. Sophia is in her early 30s. She's 31 and she has already started her own company called Gen Y Planning, which delivers comprehensive financial planning to those in their 20s and 30s across the country. So if you're on this show listening and thinking, I'm 25 or I'm 32, and I would like to work with a financial planner who gets me, who understands that I don't have a lot of money right now, but I hope to someday. And I still have a lot of financial questions and I deserve financial attention. She might be the one to help you navigate all of your questions and give you great advice regardless of the fact that you're not quote unquote wealthy. You know, most financial planners require an asset minimum of a million dollars and it makes it an unattainable resource for most people, particularly millennials seeking advice with how to start everything from, you know, buying a home to starting a family, saving for retirement, creating an estate plan, building up their finances. With Gen Y Planning, Sophia, who is a certified financial professional, she's determined to shake up the financial planning industry and work with clients today so that they can reach that seven figures, million dollars in the future. But interestingly, Sophia actually never planned to be in finance. She actually was a theater performance and women's studies major in college back at Minnesota State University. And while in college, she set the impressive goal for herself of buying a home after graduation. And she became obsessed. She spent her time between classes at Barnes & Noble reading everything she could about money, personal finance, real estate, building wealth. And so at the ripe age of 21, when she graduated, guess what? She bought a house. Seeing her success, friends began to ask Sophia for, naturally, advice, which led her to become a CFP and eventually begin Gen Y planning. Sophia is, if you couldn't tell already, she's really impressive. She's a darling person to speak with. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I'm thrilled to share her story. We discussed that time she bought that home at 21 and why it's not exactly the same advice she'd give today. How not to get distracted by the overall economy, she says, but how to be more concerned with your personal economy. And three smart, important financial steps we should all take before reaching the age of 30. And if you're 31 or 40, it's not too late. You can still follow these steps, but it's really helpful to get these done and out of the way before 30. Here we go. Unleashing Sophia Barra. Sophia Barra, my So Money Millennial and financial planner for millennials. Welcome to So Money. Very excited to share your business and your philosophies with our audience. Yay. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. Absolutely. You know, as I, I've known you now for a while and I know that I've wanted to have you on the show and I thought, 
perfect. I'll have you on Millennial Week because A, you're an outstanding millennial in and of itself. You have accomplished so much by age 31, financially and in other respects. Uh, but a lot of my audience is interested in financial planning as far as, you know, working with a planner. They may not feel they are ready to work with a planner. Their uh, sense of the market is that you have to have a lot of wealth or investable assets in order to be attractive to work with a planner. And, and certainly there are wealth planners out there that want a certain, a certain caliber of clients, but you're here to say there is hope for all of us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> particularly yeah. the millennial cohort uh, that is a very ambitious and earning money and well is willing to work hard and wants to work hard for their money. So let's start with a little uh, background on uh, you and how you got involved in financial planning, specifically for millennials. I understand that you weren't even interested in pursuing finance in the beginning. Yeah, I was a theater major in my undergrad. So I thought that um, I would be doing theater and tours and all of that. And I was determined not to be a starving artist. So I figured if I was only going to make, you know, maybe $30,000 a year, I better learn how to, you know, what I should do with it, right? So I would sit in the personal finance section of Barnes & Noble and read every money book I could get my hands on. And that's where I came across your book, uh, your first book that came out, which is great, which so I've been following you for a long time. You're so money, which I love. And <laughs> at the time, there wasn't really any financial books that were geared towards a younger demographic. Everybody was talking about, you know, retirement planning and buying houses and whatnot. And so, um, so I started learning everything I could about business and, and money. And I decided I was going to buy a house when I graduated from college. So at 21, I bought a house when I graduated from college and all my friends started coming to me with their money questions. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's this whole field out there called financial planning. I could become a certified financial planner, get my CFP and start helping people with their money. And in my second CFP class, I actually met my future boss um, he ended up, it was a father-son planning team, and they were looking at hiring somebody in their back office, and I got my foot in the door and started learning, you know, the ins and outs of financial planning, and it, and it was really great, and it was a great way to gain a lot of experience and learn how to use different financial planning tools, um, but ultimately, my friends kept saying, so can I be one of your clients, and I had to tell them no, because they didn't have half a million or a million dollars in assets. So that kind of led me on this other journey to, to start looking into what my friends were doing online that were financial bloggers and how they were helping people their own age. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I ended up working at a startup for a year, um, learned a ton, got to work with a ton of clients in a really short amount of time, which was great. But ultimately, I really wanted to do my own thing. And I really wanted to focus on millennials. So I decided to launch Gen Y Planning uh, about two years ago, so in May of 2013, so that I could specifically help people in their 20s and 30s with their money. And so now um, I work with a variety of clients across the country. Uh, all of them are either millennials or young Gen Xers. And it's really fun because they work on a monthly subscription instead of um, just solely on assets under management. I don't charge any commissions. I'm totally fee only. And so it doesn't matter whether you have assets or you don't have assets. Um, I'm willing to work with you. So, so that's a really different than a lot of Yeah, really planners. different structure. What's the financial commitment on average for your clients? 
So I have two different programs. I have um, my financial accountability program, and that's my flagship program. And I charge an upfront planning fee, which is usually $1,500 upfront to $2,000. And then I charge an ongoing monthly subscription that's $149 to $199 a month, just depending on the complexity and if you're an individual or a couple and, and a couple other things. Um, but you know, what I figured was a lot of people were spending around 150 bucks a month for their gym membership, their cell phone bill. And that was something that people could, you know, manage to pay their financial planner if they, you know, if we broke it down into a, on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. So that's one program. But then my first year, I just had that program available, but I had a lot of prospective clients that were coming to me saying, Sophia, I really want to work with you but I really am not quite ready to work together on an ongoing basis, but I'd love to get a little bit of financial advice now, take that advice and implement it on my own. And then when I'm ready to work with you ongoing, you know, come back. So I started another program called my quick start session and it's an hour and a half long Skype call. We dive deep in two or three financial planning topics. And then I shoot you an email with recommendations after that. And it's um, for that package, it's a one-time fee of $499. Not bad. Yeah. And it can be on anything you want. So I have a lot of clients that, for example, just finished law school or um, grad school, and maybe they have a lot of student loan debt and they're wondering, Hey, Sophia, can you help me navigate through this? And what do I do? You know, I just got a new job. Can you help me um, with my company benefits, choose my company benefits, or can you help me sign up for my 401k or can you help me start a Roth IRA? And so those are a lot of the questions that I'm answering for young people. And a lot of times those are things that people are kind of paralyzed on, right? They get the new job and then they get this 50 page company benefits package and they don't know what to do with it. So Um, let's say you are a millennial on this podcast listening. You feel as though you've, you're starting from scratch financially. Sophia, what are the three things that everyone by the t- by the time they turn 30 should have figured out, done, invested in, saved up, whatever you think is important by age 30 with their money? Great question. So the three things that I like to focus on are really what I think um this is what I think establishes financial building financial security. And so the first thing is to establish some sort of emergency savings. Um, and then, the, and I usually say start with a thousand dollars and then get out of any high interest rate credit card debt. So that's the second thing. Then come back to building up your emergency savings to about three months of your, your net pay. So if you get make $3,000, a month, let's say you get two paychecks that are $1,500 each, I would save up about nine or 10 grand in emergency savings. And then the next thing is start getting on track for retirement. So make sure you're at least getting your company match if your employer offers it. So let's say they'll match 3% on your 401k. If you put in 3%, at least do that. But set up something where you're automatically increasing your contributions every year or make a calendar alert for every six months just to increase your your monthly contribution or sorry, your contributions to your 401k by 1%. Because if you do that, you know, and you start doing that when you're 25 and you increase it, you know, you start with 3%, but you increase it by 1% every six months. Pretty soon, you know, by the time you hit 30, you're at, you know, 13%. Right. It's so called save more tomorrow and it, it's very effective. Yeah. And then I also, I'm a huge fan of the Roth IRA. So if you don't have a company match through work or if you're getting your company match and instead of putting more money to your 401k, you want to start a Roth IRA, both are excellent choices. 
Um, you know, you can, the maximum you can put into your Roth IRA is $5,500 per year. And if you can get in the habit of starting to max that out every year, do it now because it's a use it or lose it thing. So you right. can't hit 35 and then go back and put in $50,000 of contributions. And by then you, you might be making too much. Do you will, you will have phased out. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's great to take advantage, especially while you're young, especially while you're in a lower tax bracket. Um, and I, I like to have some money going into our 401k plans or pre-tax and then some money going into the Roth since we don't know what tax rates will be in the future. It just gives you more flexibility. Exactly. Diversify your tax exposure is exactly. a great way to approach it. So that's great. So, so you were saying basically tackle the credit card, high interest rate debt, uh, make sure you have a savings cushion. Interesting. You said like eight, 9,000 as opposed to like six months or 12 months. You're more focused on kind of the figure as opposed to the duration. Yeah. I think that, you know, three months to me, three months of, of net pay for emergencies is usually, um, pretty good for young people and young couples. Um, because if one of those people was to lose their job, you would still have the other person's job. And so that three months of savings would actually last you more like six months. And then the other thing is a lot of people in their twenties and thirties are very marketable, right? So it doesn't take them as long right. to find a job. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Imagine being, um, 60 with a lot of work experience, making a very high salary, losing your job. There are fewer positions probably that could uh, support you in the way that your old job was. Exactly. And while you're young, you know, my clients, especially they like, you know, they know how to, they know what, what skills they have that are marketable. They know, um, what they're worth and they're, you know, they're willing to work hard and to hustle. Um, and so oftentimes, you know, we start working together and six months later they switch jobs because there's this new great career opportunity. Right. Um, so I think that, um, you know, if you have highly marketable skills, if you're willing to hustle, I think three months of emergency savings is a, is a nice cushion to have. Um, and then, and then beyond that, I would, I'll, you know, want to make sure we're doing those other things like the Roth IRA and things like that, as opposed to sitting on, you know, $50,000 in savings. Interesting, Sophia, that you emerged into the space as a homeowner. You bought a home when you were 21, which is even, I mean, even back then that was pretty uh, outstanding. I don't think a lot of 21-year-olds are buying homes. Would you recommend that today to somebody who is a millennial who is interested in home buying? I mean, we just know, I think looking at the overall market, that generation is not really interested in home ownership, either because they can't afford it or because it just doesn't really speak to their ideals as much as it did generations past. So I think one of the things that's really important is to look at your personal economy instead of getting distracted by the actual economy. So too many people say, oh, is now a great time to buy a home? Or interest rates are really low. Should I buy a house right now? Instead of saying, do I have a good down payment saved? Am I going to be living here for the next five years? How secure is my current job? And really looking at what's going on in their personal situation. And oftentimes, once we start diving into those things, buying a home for millennials may not be the best decision. Um, for me, you know, I bought at a time when lending was really easy. I didn't have to come up with a large down payment. 
Um, but at the same time, I had I not had roommates, I would have been kind of overextended on my mortgage. And so I think that, you know, I shouldn't have bought one I did. It ended up working out because I was able to get some roommates to help me with a mortgage. And so it ended up being about the same cost as renting. But then I didn't realize how many renovations and repairs and, and maintenance costs I would put into the home. And I think that's a really hard thing for people to gauge. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they save up, you know, this big down payment, they use this all of their cash to buy a house. And then what's the first thing that you do? You have to pay for moving expenses and then people want to paint and then people want to refurnish the place. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, we just want to do a small kitchen renovation. And while they're doing that, then the roof goes. And, and so it's those types of scenarios that I think not enough people think through before they buy a home. And instead they just feel like, oh, I'm wasting all of this money renting. And I actually don't think it's a waste of money to rent in most cities. That's an excellent point. I mean, there is a lot of external pressure, whether it's you got to buy the home, you have to get married in a certain way, you have to uh, stick with your job because it has benefits. My goodness, if we had, if we just did a show on all of the uh, kind of stereotypical expectations that there are of uh, just Americans in general, as far as how they should manage their lives and their money, my goodness. I mean, we'd have, a, I think we'd laugh a lot and we'd probably right. also, it would be very sobering because it's why a lot of people do end up getting themselves into trouble. It's because they listen too much to everybody else and not really to themselves and take a look at their personal economy, which I think is brilliant advice. Don't worry about the overall economy as much as your personal economy. And I think too, you know, for our parents it, and our grandparents, it was the American dream to buy a home. But I look at how many homes did my grandparents own and how many homes did my parents own ha or have my parents owned so far? And they've each owned two. <laughs> and so right. I also think that like they wanted to do those things because it was a very long-term decision for them. Whereas a lot of my clients have switched jobs you know, twice since we started working together, maybe two years ago. And so they, we might own many homes over our lifetime. And because of that, I think we needed to be a little bit more cautious um, on when we do buy. I think that more people are going to go from, you know, renting to buying back to renting again, and then back to buying again, right? Depending on. Yeah, that. I have. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I love real estate. I love, I love to find, you know, I love looking at the real estate section in the New York times. It's just something that I really appreciate and enjoy, but I'm not going to be a fool and buy a home when I know that the market is at its peak or if the renter's market is really attractive and, and that seems like a better move for the, for our family. I'm not going to, you know, just do something based on some principle that, you know, putting money, renting money, renting a home is money down the toilet. And I think that's so smart, Farnoosh, for you to be able to look at that and say, hey, I know that it's a great time to rent, so we're going to rent for a few years. Or it's a great time to buy. We have the cash saved up. Let's look at purchasing. Uh, most people don't do that. Most people, once they buy, they never want to rent again. And I actually have clients that, you know, I've, I've, try to talk a lot of clients out of buying, or I've tried to convince more clients to rent because oftentimes if you're moving for a new job, um, let's see if you like the job first, right? If you're moving across yeah. country for that position and what often happens is, you know, the job's a little bit different than they expected, or it has different demands or whatnot. Um, and so I think that it's, you know, it's, 
with so many changes going on with, you know, if you are moving across country, you know, a move is big enough and then moving across country and then, you know, starting a new job, rent for a while, see if you like it, get to know the new area, figure out, hey, we thought we'd want to live in this area, but, you know, our friends live in this area and that's really nice too. Um, and so I think that really taking some time to to rent for a while is a great way to discover the area that you want to live in, save up for a bigger down payment, um, decide if you want to be in that city or that place long term, or hey, we might just be here for two years and then we really want to move back to you know where our family is, or we want to move back to you know want to move to where my spouse's family is because we never live by them. Um, and so I think really kind of looking at what's going on in your current situation and, and is buying the best move for you or not, uh, is something that takes a lot more thought than just, okay, we, we owned a home before we're moving to a new place. We're selling that home. We're buying a new one. Right. Right. Um, and also one other thing I want to point out is that there are some, also some opportunities when you, when you do sell your home. So I have clients that are selling a home right now and we've decided to use a lot of the money that they're making from the sale of their home to pay off debt. And so that can be another great opportunity as well. If you do have, you know, equity in your home to be able to take that and kind of jumpstart some other financial priorities because they do have a move cross country for a new position. Um, and they are able to use a lot of the cash that they have from the sale of their one home to um, pay off the debt that they, you know, had from a previous move, actually. And they're able to really kind of start um, start in a new state with with, you know, no credit card debt and, um, and just really in a much better financial position. So sometimes moving for a new position or whatnot, and then selling that asset that you have can really um, shift, you know, shift money to be able to pay off debt, build up savings and work on those towards those other financial priorities. You talked about debt here. And Let's. I don't like to really harp on debt on the show because it's so depressing, but it's a reality of a lot of our financial lives and particularly millennials with student loans. What would you say to, say, a 25-year-old saddled with over six figures in law, stu- law school debt? Um, granted, they may have a job that pays them well, but still, that's a huge huge amount going out of their budget every month. How do they make ends meet in a way that not only allows them to pay off the debt, but really have a lifestyle around that? That's such a good question. And it's something that I see quite a bit now because the cost of higher education, especially law degrees and MBAs is really expensive. Um, So I, I would tell them a couple things. First, really learn the ins and outs of your student loans? Do you have private or public student loans? Um, if you have private loans, you know, what's the interest rate on your student loans? I usually recommend paying those off faster. Private loans aren't eligible for any of the federal student loan programs. Um, and so figuring out a plan to pay off your private student loans first is usually where I start. Um, while, while simultaneously looking into the federal student loan programs that are income-based programs. So right now there's pay as you earn, there's income-based repayment, income contingent repayment. Um, if you're a lawyer at a nonprofit, you might qualify for uh, PSLF, which is public service loan forgiveness. So if you, you know, aren't making very much money as a lawyer, um, you might want to see if, if the place that you're working at qualifies for one of these public service loan pro- forgiveness programs. And you can couple that with income-based repayment or with um, 
with pay as you earn as well. So that's something else to know. And so I would do one of those uh, income-based programs so that you can really prioritize getting out of the private student loans first, because those don't have the same um, loan forgiveness programs or forbearance options or deferment options that your federal loans do. So if you lose your job, you're still going to owe on your private student loans, whereas you can, you know, let the the, your, you know, the federal government know about your job loss and put those on hold for a while. Um, and then also I recommend, you know, really doing something for retirement. So if you're one of those people that has, you know, six figures and loan debt, but also a six figure salary, I still recommend really thinking seriously about putting as much as you can towards that 401k so that you can lower your tax bill. Um, and so I think it's really important to, you know, get some money set aside there and you, you know, you are a higher income earner. So make sure, you know, that helps lower your tax bill and, and getting those dollars away for retirement. And, um, in addition to that, a lot of times lawyers have bonuses that they're getting. And I actually had a client who, um, is 35 young lawyer and she paid off all of her private student loans, which was $100,000 in five years by using her bonuses to go directly towards her private student loan payments. That's brilliant. I agree. I think any lump sum that you earn, whether it's through your work bonus, a tax refund, someone gave you money because they love you on your birthday. You know, I just made $1,100. Do you know how? How? I got a letter in the mail from a lawyer, some legal team. And I was at first kind of worried. because, like, oh, my God, why is this legal team contacting me? And they're like, Farnoosh, you actually have some money through the state of New York that has been unclaimed. We cannot oh. we don't know how much it is, but we are we would like to work on your behalf to retrieve it for you and take a small commission of like, I don't know, 10 or 15 percent. But I did a little Googling and I discovered that I could easily go and fetch this money myself Yes. I didn't have to go and hire a, lo- a legal team and give them commission. It took me six minutes, <laughs> not even, to go on to the, um, I think it was the New York State Budget Terry office or something. I Googled basically unclaimed funds, New York state, which, exactly. which was all the information that was the, the, the lawyers were not very smart because they just basically gave me all the information in the letter of like where the money is. Right. And so I just went online, click, click, click signed up. I said, okay, send me the check. They, they weren't able to reveal how much. And I said, well, you know, surprise me. And it came in the mail. I had totally forgotten about it. It was weeks later and I had an $1,100 check that I suppose one of my previous employers from, I, this was probably like at this point, six years ago, it never got to me some, for some reason, I think I'd moved and it may have gotten bounced back the check. So there you go. $1,100 that I didn't even know. And um, I used it to pay for our vacation last week. Nice. Where'd you go? We were in uh, on Long Island, uh, East East Long Island. So it was uh, it was nice. It paid for um, nice. a lot that week. So it was it was nice to have that, you know, surprise, surprise gift. So much fun. So yeah, much fun. Great. Well, Sophia, all great. We haven't even gotten to your so money questions. And I, for, for the, to respect time, I want to uh, maybe just get to a few that I think would be most interesting to our listeners. I, I'm going to skip the philosophy question. I would like to know, I would like to know what was your exposure to money growing up? You're 31 years old. You bought a house when you were 21. You were a theater major turned finance expert. What the heck was happening in your house when you were growing up learning about money, if you even learned it, about it at, at a young age? Yeah. So 
It's so funny. There, there are a few really fun money memories I have. Um, I do remember my, so for bigger purchases, um, my, my parents would match me dollar for dollar. So if I wanted something that was like a hundred dollars, I had to save up 50 and then they would put $50 in. And that really got me in the habit of like wanting to save up for things. Um, and I think that that was like a great incentive. Um, also I remember when my cousin, when my, my mom was writing a birthday card to my cousin and she, he was like 14. So she put $20 in a card and sent it off. And I was, I was like five at the time and could not believe that my cousin was getting $20 because I wanted $20. And so my mom was like, well, you get toys on your birthday. You know, you, that's why you don't get money. And, you know, we're, we weren't sure what Jesse would want. So we're, you know, sending $20. And I was like, well, I want $20 for my birthday. Cause you know, I was like very sure of myself at a very young age. So anyway, for my birthday, I got $20 and then I got to go to Target with my parents and pick out whatever toy I wanted. And so I ended up getting a Barbie doll. And I remember it costing like almost all of my $20. Like they only gave me a few dollars back. And I was really like, huh, that's weird. Like Hmm. this is almost all gone. And then I got home and I like took it out of the package and I played with it for 10 minutes and I started bawling. And my dad was like, Sophie, what's wrong? And I was like, I spent all my money on my Barbie doll. <laughs> I don't even like it. She doesn't do anything. Yeah. Like I was so like, I had like the worst like buyer's remorse. And so like from then on, I had always been a pretty good saver because I just like, I realized that like things really didn't give me a lot of value. Hmm. At um, least things that you paid for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but my parents also took me traveling from a very young age. So I was an only child and my parents took me on usually an annual family vacation out of the country. And so I got a chance to see really cool parts of the world. And it's something that I that I really value to this day is spending money on travel and experiences. Yeah, so, you've been traveling all over. You're calling right now from Canada. But I, I, I ran into you at in Fort Worth at Podcast Movement. Next, you're headed to where? So I'm going to Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City. And then after that, I'm headed to Austin for two weeks. And then I have my first keynote speaking gig in San Diego. And then I will be back in Charlotte and I'll get to see you again. And I'm going to the XYPN conference. So the XY Planning Network is hosting their first conference. And then FinCon is right after. So I'm speaking up for those too, which will be a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll be able to reconnect. Hey, I don't know any financial planners that live out of a suitcase. I think that's pretty awesome. I know I'm my, my friend Katie always jokes that she's going to start me a website called homelessfinancialplanner.com. <laughs> oh like, my gosh. Hey, that like, actually maybe, has some pretty good SEO. I think I'll, that could be very, very popular. I was like, maybe nomadic, you know, it sounds like it's chosen more than just like, you know, I don't have homeless you know. sells better. <laughs> oh, maybe Speaking you're from right. the, uh, the online, uh, video journalist here, I can tell you, I've worked at Yahoo for three years. I know what the SEO. Uh, there you go. I should uh, go buy sweet the spot domain. is homeless yeah. is a very hot. Uh, it'll get it'll definitely get clicked on. Just put <laughs> it that way. Sophia, what would you say is your most your, your worst financial moment if you had a failure to date? And it, I, I'm guessing from you, it's not going to be anything catastrophic. But if there was something that you learned the hard way, and that you would mind sharing with us so that we don't make the same mistake. Yeah. Uh, what would it be? 
No, it probably was buying a house before I was ready. So, you know, I, I, I would say that that was a financial mistake that I made. It ended up working out. I ended up, um, you know, like renting it to friends for a while and then, um, then living there and then renting it out and whatnot. But I do think that I, I bought at the wrong time. There were other financial priorities I should have been putting my money towards. Um, and, and that was something that I just, you know, I, I bought at the kind of the wrong time. It was, the, almost the height of the market, um, August of 2005. And so I really learned a lot from that experience. And, and I think that it makes me feel much better about renting now too. So um, I think that that's one of those mistakes that I definitely learned from and that I hope other millennials learn from is, you know, it's okay to rent for a while and, and just buy a house when you're ready, when, mm-hmm. when everything's going right in your personal economy. What's a habit that you practice regularly to help with your personal finances? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, so I, I really, um, let's see here. I'm trying to think of, you know, I really try to max out my Roth IRA every year. I just make that a priority. And so that's something that, um, whether it's a combination of doing, um, a little bit each month and then, you know, throwing some extra income towards that at the end of the year to hit the max. That's really something that I, that I try to do just to get those dollars in there. Cause I know it's like a, a use it or lose it thing. And then the other thing that I would say is really in investing in yourself and that can be in small ways. So, you know, I started practicing yoga a year and a half ago, and I think investing in your health is one of the best things you can do for your finances. Um, and so I really think it's important to put money into investing in your health and your own, um, and, and yourself. I read a lot of books, financial books. I, you know, I love my Kindle. I recently left it on a plane, so I have to get a new one. Ooh. <laughs> oh, so that's a bummer, but mm-hmm. you know, just taking, I think little thing, little ways that you can invest in yourself, whether it's, you know, learning a new skill, reading more about a topic that you're interested in. I'm always reading business books and, um, and biographies and self-help and all of that. Um, and then investing in your health and making health and fitness a priority so that you don't have, you know, major health problems later on. Here, here. All right, Sophia, let's do some so many fill in the blanks. Yes. <laughs> if I won the lottery tomorrow, $100 million, the first thing I would do is? Take all my friends on vacation. Excellent. I would be among them? <laughs> yes. You're okay. more than welcome to come. <laughs> the, the one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Ooh, coffee shops. I love working out of coffee shops and... Uh, so it's so much fun for me to spend the afternoon at a little coffee shop and drinking hot tea or a latte or some sugary coffee drink that I probably shouldn't be drinking, but it's delicious. And supporting small businesses everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Assuming you're not at a Starbucks, but it's okay if you are. I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> well, well, we were in Fort Worth. Yes, we in Fort Worth. Options, right? <laughs> I know. We had the hotel Starbucks. My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on is... Food. Man, I'm such a foodie. I love eating at new restaurants. I love trying new food. I ate my way through Barcelona. Um, yes, I love I love spending money on food and going out um, to little wine bars with friends and whatnot. So that's definitely, 
way up there um, with travel, but I usually get to write a lot of my travel off, which is nice because I'm nice. usually nice. Oh my yeah. gosh, mm, you're usually going it's all to coming conference. together now. I'm, yeah. really, I'm realizing the benefits. <laughs> when I oh, let me go back, I skipped one. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is that I should have let my parents just pay for things. <laughs> um, that. Um, one thing that I wish I would have known was about, um, like how to protect it. Like I didn't learn anything about insurance or anything like that till I started taking my financial planning classes. Like mm-hmm. I understood that you paid down debt and built, built up savings, but I didn't know that there was anything else to it. All right. Now when I donate money, I like to give to blank because... Ooh. Oh, there's a couple of different things that I like to give to. Um, I like to give to public radio because that's where I get a lot of my news from. Um, I really like to give to uh, organizations that that focus on financial education. So there's this great group in Minnesota called Best Prep, and I do some volunteer work for them where I go into classrooms and speak on um, financial education and give presentations and they are just awesome. And so I try to make a financial donation to them every year and I try to actually link it to the number of new clients I get. So for every new client I get, I try to donate $50 to best prep. Excellent. I love that you contribute to public radio. That's a, that's really endearing. And I don't hear that often enough. It's, you know, it's like I grew up like mm-hmm. listening to it in the car with my dad and I thought it was so annoying. And now like you get into my car and it's like this really annoying talk radio and I'm that's how I get my news, you know, yes. and now I'm like, oh, I love this. Now it's not annoying, you know, I know. right on. And I'm Sophia Barra. I'm so money because. Ooh, uh, oh, it's so good. Um, I'm so money because I use my money to match my values to live a great life. Perfect. What a perfect interview. I'm going to put a nice little bow on this and oh, uh, and send yeah. this out. Really, Sophia, it was a wonderful to speak with you. I had a big smile on my face the whole time, and I know listeners really appreciated your candid advice, and it's so needed, so needed what you are doing. I'm going to share all your links with uh, our audience, and I wish you continued success and safe travels. Thank you so much. And um, if anybody is interested in, you know, having a free half hour call with me, they can go to my website, genyplanning.com backslash schedule and get on my calendar and do a free half hour money call if they're interested in becoming a client. Wow, that's really generous. Yeah, I think that it's it's something that I really try to connect with people one on one and at least to give them one great uh, financial tip that they can use whether they decide to work together or not. Perfect. Well, everyone run. I will will have that link on our site as well at So Money Podcast. Thanks again, Sophia. Thank you for news. Have a great day. That is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Sophia Barra, her website is genyplanning.com. And remember, if you want to sign up for a free 30-minute phone call with her to decide whether you would like to work with her, her online scheduler is genyplanning.com forward slash schedule. Sophia is on Twitter at Sophia Barra. 
Of course, all this information at somoneypodcast.com in case you missed any of it. You can get also the transcript and the comments from this episode. And I want to hear from you. Submit your question about money, work, life, and guests at somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh. And there's a really good chance that I will answer it on the show. And in fact, I'm going to invite Sophia to a special edition of Ask Farnoosh in the near future so that she and I can go through all your questions together and tag team. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoy our millennial today. we got one more left tomorrow and I'm going to give you a little bit of a tease. She's 26 years old and she's saved almost $100,000. She's going to tell us how. Stay tuned tomorrow for Latrice Bookhard. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. So money.